This is episode number 35 of the Individual One podcast. And for the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at individual1pod. That's individual, the number one pod. Lots to talk about, as is always the case, on a slightly different schedule this week. Recording this uh, Thursday morning, Los Angeles, California time. Uh, normally, we are on a Wednesday-Sunday schedule. I expect that we will be doing a Sunday broadcast uh, this coming weekend, so hopefully we'll be getting back to some semblance of normalcy on our scheduling for the Individual One podcast, so thanks for bearing with us. I want to begin today with the fact that it is the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which is amazing in itself. I mean, the fact that it's been 75 years So much about the world has changed, and yet there were many of those who participated in the invasion of Normandy who are there today to commemorate the event, particularly poignant this time, not just because 75 is obviously a significant number in and of itself, but the reality is that this is the last time this is going to happen in this way. Uh, I doubt that there will be an 80th. I'm sure there'll be some commemoration, but nothing to this magnitude. And by that time, we're going to start losing even those guys who are left. I'm sure even the guys that are left are thinking it's insane that uh, 75 years after I went through this, I'm alive, kicking, and still able to make it there uh, to commemorate uh, one of the most amazing achievements, at least militarily, in human history. And, of course, we have this bizarre spectacle uh, of Donald Trump being the representative of the United States of America. Correct. Uh, now, his speech at the commemoration was um, was very good. He re- read the teleprompter quite well. Clearly, he did not write the speech, and to his credit, he did not go off script. Uh, he did not uh, go rogue. He did not be uh, Trumpy. He was he was very Trumpy during his whole trip. Uh, overseas. Uh, and we'll get to some of that as we go along. But at least when it came to D-Day, he was pretty much able to keep it according uh, to the script. Uh, there are those who were claiming that the event was delayed because Donald Trump was doing an interview with Fox News Channel. I- I'm not 100% sure that's correct. Uh, I have not been able to feel confident in, in blaming Donald Trump for that. But there was some sort of delay and Trump was uh, with uh, Laura Ingram apparently doing an interview, but I'm not sure that's exactly why uh, the whole thing was delayed, so I'm not going to make a big deal about that. Uh, I, I think in the bigger picture on the issue of D-Day, not only is it important to remember uh, what an incredibly uh, brave and important event this was, uh, because for a lot of people, especially younger people in America, they, they have no concept of this, uh, the significance of it, and the magnitude of it. But also, I mentioned how much the world has changed. And it is my view that you could never do D-Day today for a lot of reasons. I mean, just simply from a media perspective, think about how impossible pulling off D-Day would be today with 24-7 news coverage where news outlets have the ability and the willingness to report on everything live across the globe at 
as it happens where you've got cell phones and cameras everywhere. There's, it would be impossible, utterly impossible to go over the English Channel without the whole world knowing about it before it actually happened. The media would be endlessly speculating about this for days, if not weeks. They'd be leaking all the plans. And then even more, maybe, well, it's hard to say it would be more importantly, but certainly as importantly, when the invasion occurred, of course, there's going to be massive casualties. That's the most, maybe from a human perspective, the most amazing part of this whole thing. This was done knowing that the Allied forces were going to lose thousands of men. And, of course, that's what happened. But the way that that was portrayed in the media was very different. It was we didn't see the graphic nature of it. We understood it in, a, in one sense. I wasn't alive, but based upon my understanding of history, we understood it. But it didn't have the same kind of impact it would have today. And the media coverage wasn't nearly the same. Today, those casualties would be all anyone would be focused on. And immediately, immediately it would be portrayed as a disaster, in my view, because of all the casualties, because that's all that would matter. And that's what the American public and the and the Western public would see. And our sensitivity to that has increased dramatically over time. And so that would have a massive impact on how that event was perceived and whether or not the war effort would continue. And, uh, and then, of course, because of that, I believe the news media would be asking all sorts of questions about whether or not this level of casualties was worth what we're going up against. Maybe Hitler isn't worth all of this, this loss of, of human life and resources. Maybe he really isn't that bad. I mean, that's the way it would go today. So, the, so none of this would be the same. I also think that our younger generation is much different today, and I don't think they would be capable of doing this the way the younger generation was in 1944. Now, when I tweeted about this today, I got a lot of interesting responses. One of them, of course, was about more than one was about Trump. What would happen if Trump himself was president of the United States at this time? And we had the D-Day situation. And uh, maybe the best response was uh, this uh, fictitious, although <laughs> really pretty realistic, version of what Trump might have said if he was president uh, during this time period in 1944. Quote, Adolf Hitler sent me the most amazing letter. It's a really beautiful thing, and in many ways we fell in love. I told him, stop bombing, and those camps could be prime real estate. He's actually a funny guy, that Hitler. Anyway, D-Day, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I could see a, a, a Donald Trump, you know, if he was enamored, if Hitler had enough celebrity, which he did at the time, and kissed Trump's ass in the right way, I can totally see uh, Trump reacting that way. Of course, it might also sound something more like this. My father is German, right? Was German. And uh, born in a, a very wonderful place in Germany. And so I have a great feeling for Germany. Of course, it's important to point out Trump's father was not born in Germany. <laughs> He's a, he was apparently referring to generously, generously, we'll, we'll say he was referring mistakenly to his grandfather. Uh, but, you know, I can totally see where people are coming from when when they look at uh, Donald Trump and they go, well, you know, if, if the if the tyrant or the dictator uh, kissed Trump's ass in the right way, uh, he would be exceedingly soft on him. He would go Chamberlain on on, on Hitler. 
I can totally understand why people uh, perceive it that way. Thank goodness that was not the case. And hopefully we're not going to see anything like that in the future, although we easily could, especially if Donald Trump is reelected and president for almost another six years. So uh, and then, of course, there's another element of Donald Trump being president uh, today during the, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And of, and of course, the, the theory of what would happen if any of this uh, transpired today. And there's the issue that he did not serve in Vietnam. And while he was uh, overseas, he did an interview with Piers Morgan. Now, first of all, it's important to point out, (laughs) Piers Morgan is a buddy of his. Piers Morgan was on The Celebrity Apprentice, I believe, a couple of times. Uh, So this is, it's absurd. It's utterly absurd that this is who's getting an interview with the President of the United States uh, of this magnitude. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, But it's also important to point out that Donald Trump, by my estimation, and I, I've not anyone correct me on this when I've mentioned it uh, publicly, by my estimation, Donald Trump has not done a sit-down television interview with a non-friendly interviewer since October of last year when he sat down with Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes. October of last year. If Barack Obama had ever gone that long without doing a non-friendly television sit-down interview, uh, th- that's all the conservative media would be talking about. This, of course, is in combination with the fact that there are no press hearings anymore. The, the press office at the White House has basically been shut down because they just don't want to take any questions for, uh, for often obvious reasons. So, the, so it, it's, a, it's insane that he's doing the, he did this interview with Piers Morgan to begin with. But then Piers Morgan actually asks a pretty decent question, although he asks it in the softest way possible, and you'll hear in a moment just how absurd it is that Piers Morgan essentially makes an excuse for Donald Trump right off the bat, accepting an excuse that even Donald Trump doesn't apparently accept about why he did not serve in Vietnam uh, because of alleged bone spurs, which there has been uh, enormous amounts of reporting about that it was a, a at best a dubious claim by Trump and in fact probably just fabricated uh, by friends of his father. And so here is the, this interview and this answer. My gosh, if we lived in a rational world, if we lived in a, in a world where we actually uh, you know, didn't move on to the next shiny object in 15 seconds, I believe this answer is something we would be talking about for weeks. In, in past uh, modern presidential administrations, we would have talked about this answer for weeks because there's multiple layers to this onion to unpeel. So here is uh, Piers Morgan softballing as much as possible the, uh, the question to Donald Trump about him not serving in Vietnam. And uh, listen carefully to just because just about every aspect of this has something worthy of comment. You were... Uh not able to serve in Vietnam because of a bone spur condition in your feet. Do you wish you'd been able to serve? Would you like to have served your country? Well, I was never a fan of that war, I'll be honest with you. I, I thought it was a, a terrible war. I thought it was very far away. Nobody ever, you know, you're talking about Vietnam, and at that time, nobody ever heard of the country. Today, they're doing very well. In fact, uh, on trade, they are brutal. They're very brutal. They're great negotiators. They're great business people. But uh, nobody heard of Vietnam, and they say, what are we doing? So many people dying. What is happening over there? So I was never a fan. This isn't like I'm fighting against Nazi Germany. I'm fighting, we're fighting against Hitler. 
And I was like a lot of people. Now, I wasn't out in the streets marching. I wasn't saying, you know, I'm going to move to Canada, which a lot of people did. But no, I was not a fan of that war. That war was not something would that Would you like we to have served generally, perhaps in another... I would not have minded that at all. I would have been honored, but I think I make up for it right now. I look, $700 billion I gave last year, and then this year, $716 billion. And I think I'm making up for it rapidly because we're rebuilding our military at, at a level that it's never seen before. You know, I, I don't think I have enough time. I really don't have enough time to properly break down that answer because almost every single sentence has a problem. Now, the biggest overreaching, uh, uh, clearly bizarre element of the answer is that even with Piers Morgan handing him the bone spurs excuse on a silver platter, this reminded me of the Lester Holt NBC interview where he admits that he fired James Comey over Russia. He's effectively saying, yeah, that whole Bones first thing, that, that was bullshit. Correct. Uh, I mean, he's admitting it. Because he doesn't even mention bone spurs, and he goes to talk about all the reasons why he was against serving. Not against the war, but against serving. And that therefore, it was justified for him to make up an excuse about phony bone spurs and, uh, and to be able to dodge the draft. The most, the craziest of all of them is probably it was so far away. And no one had ever heard of Vietnam before. What? What? You cannot be serious. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you only fight in you only it's only uh, acceptable to fight in wars that are uh, against celebrity enemies. I mean, this is the way his mind works. Well, you know, Germany, Hitler, Germany's a big country. Hitler was a well-known figure. That's that's a worthy battle. But, you know, even though uh, the president, you know, the position he currently holds, sent our troops into battle, into war in Vietnam when we had a draft, when, when you were legally obligated to serve, when, when your number was picked, and here you are lying to get out of that, and now you're president of the United States yourself, which is, from a philosophical standpoint, the biggest issue I have with what he just did there. Because I've always stated one of the many problems with the Trump presidency is he has no moral authority to do anything great because over 50% of the American people hate his guts, and they don't trust him. They don't just don't like him. They don't just disagree with him. They despise him. They believe he's a pathological liar, which he is, and a bad person. So he has no moral authority to begin with. But now he's given up even whatever little semblance of moral authority he had, for instance, if we ever are forced to go into a controversial war. How in the world does he have the moral authority? And I realize there's no draft, but still, it's, it's the same basic concept. How does he have any moral authority to force a service member into a war that they don't personally agree with or forget about even agree with that they're not fired up about well you can't send us there no one's ever heard of this country before it's so far away what what and and so there's the bone spurs thing which he acknowledges now is bullshit there's the bizarre explanation for why he was against the war there's the 
whataboutism, which is, well, at least I wasn't protesting against it. How does that help? How does that help at all? You lied to get out of the draft. What about all those people who couldn't get a, a, a doctor note claiming to have bone spurs, that didn't have rich dads, many of whom ended up dying in Vietnam? And, and then it, after Piers Morgan says, well, would you have liked to have served? <laughs> oh, my gosh. He's, he says he's made up for That was an amazing part of this whole thing. I'm making up for it. That's consciousness of guilt right there. That's consciousness of guilt. I'm making up for it. So he's acknowledging he lied without actually doing so. And I'm making up for it. But then how's he making up for it? He says, I gave the military over $700 billion. I did. Oh, really? You did that, President Trump. You did that from your own personal checking account? Oh, no, 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 no. That was from U.S. taxpayer money. Correct. You and I did that. People who pay taxes in the United States of America. We're the ones who gave the military an extra $700 billion or whatever Trump is claiming. I don't even know if that's true. I, Because <laughs> with Trump, you have no confidence at all that what's he, what he's saying is remotely true. It could be all just made-up bullcrap. I don't know what the numbers are. But the, but the reality is it's not him. And by the way, not only is it not his money, obviously, because he doesn't have anywhere near that kind of money, but it wasn't even technically him. He just signed a bill someone else uh, in Congress appropriated. Now, I'm sure he was in favor of it because he's in favor of a strong military because he's a hypocrite and, you know, he's got a, you know, an ego to, to, to uh, uphold. And this is the way he looks at the world. Strong is good. And I'm, look, I'm in favor of a strong military. I think the military needs to be rebuilt. I'm in, if we're going to spend money on anything, I'm in favor of military spending because that's what the federal government was intended to be in this country. So I got no issue with that. There's a lot worse ways we waste our money than that. But to, to use that as the explanation for how it's okay that you didn't serve in Vietnam and you lied to get a deferment multiple times with this bogus bone spur excuse, it's absurd. It, I, I, it's, and, and the idea that this is a one-day or half-a-day story, we're just going to move on? You cannot be serious! I mean, but that's the world we live in now. And all of this taking part, take, uh, happening in the context of the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which the most insane thing that happened regarding that, although it's hard to choose, is that the GOP chairwoman, chairwoman Rona Romney McDaniel, yes, that's Mitt Romney's niece, actually went on television as the GOP chairwoman and said the D-Day should be about celebrating Trump. Should be about celebrating Trump. Correct. This, and, and people sometimes still, though less and less, still question when I refer to the Republican Party as a cult. As Cult 45, George Will finally said uh, yesterday, I guess it was on television, that the Republican Party has become a cult. I love the poorly educated. Well, that's cult behavior that you couldn't even make up. When the niece of your biggest critic in the Republican Senate, Mitt Romney, says that D-Day should be about celebrating Donald Trump, we got a problem, folks. Correct. We're no longer in Kansas. This is a cult. 
That's what it is. It's a cult. And there were so many very strange moments during uh, Trump's overseas visit. My gosh, you know, the fact that he decided to, to go to Ireland to basically promote his golf course, Dunebeg, which I've played a couple times, which is, you know, I actually like the golf course. It's uh, got some problems. Interestingly, I saw a uh, report on in the Washington Post about his promoting Dunebeg in Ireland, which tried to claim that Dunebeg, which is losing money, and it is losing a lot of money uh, for a lot of reasons, partially because of the Trump name, that it's suffering from climate change, uh, which... <laughs> I had to laugh because here's here's the story on Dunebeg. Uh, Dunebeg has an 18th hole that's right on the coastline of Ireland that's very poorly designed. I hate the I hate the tee shot, and uh, and and because it's poorly designed, there's been and, and well I, chicken or the egg situation. I'm not sure if it's poorly designed and this is the cause or the or or the uh, atmospherics and the environmental issues or, or why it's poorly designed. But there's beach erosion on that hole. And so the Trump people claimed climate change was behind the erosion, not because they believe in climate change, but because that would allow them to build a wall, which of course is ironic because it's the only wall I'm aware of being built recently in Donald Trump's name. <laughs> but there's no, there's been no great climate change in Ireland. Uh, and and Dune, Dunebeg uh, has a fond place in my heart because uh, I actually, one of the times I went there, I went with my now wife, and she was having a, a horrible, horrible trip. She does not do well with jet lag, and uh, and she was not happy with the the uh, itinerary of the trip because we were way too busy, and we were visiting my my good friend, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, uh, who's actually a member at Dunebeg, which is interesting, <laughs> uh, and uh, and we were, she was literally in tears. She was in tears from exhaustion. As we were pulling up uh, to Dunebeg, and there's this massive castle behind the uh, 18th green there, and she did not want to go. She was pissed off that I was going to be playing golf. Uh, and this is how nice the um, the accommodations are at Dunebeg in the castle behind the 18th hole. She was she was so thrilled with the the bed. She still talks about the bedding there. That uh, 24 hours later, when we were set to leave, she did not want to go. So she went from literally being in tears when she saw the place to not wanting to leave because the betting was the best that she had uh, had ever experienced. Believe me, it had nothing to do with me. That, that's for sure. But anyway, that's Dunebeg and and Donald Trump. But that was just one of you know, normally a president of the United States promoting their own private business venture on a foreign trip. That would be scandalous, but we're so desensitized. Ah, that doesn't even make the, the grade. That doesn't even get remembered. Nor does the President of the United States on a foreign trip at like 1.30 in the morning getting into a Twitter feud with Bette Midler. Yes, that happened. That happened <laughs> at 1.30 in the morning. He attacked Bette Midler. <laughs> you I mean, Really? Come on. You cannot be serious. <laughs> that actually happened. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, all over Bette Midler putting out a, a tweet that has been long ago debunked. Uh, but who cares? It's Bette Midler. She's not NBC News or the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post or New York Times. She's Bette Midler. 
she posted a tweet that she later deleted, which which is better than Donald Trump does. Donald Trump tweets fake crap all the time, and he's president of the United States and never apologizes, never acknowledges a mistake. But it was a, a, a one of it was a fake news report that indicated that Donald Trump had uh, had mo- mocked the Republican base as being easily dupable, and if that's a word, and that's how he uh, effectively how he became the Republican presidential nominee because uh, the Republican base is just so dumb he could take advantage of them. By the way, the reason why a lot of people have bought into that meme as being true is because it's just so damn realistic. I love the poorly educated. I mean, mean, the first time I saw it, I thought, "Mm, that can't be true because it's just too perfect. It's just too right. It just makes too much sense. So it turns out it's not true, and it's been going around there for years, and for some reason uh, Bette Midler uh, tweeted it. And and the President of the United States, again, at 1.30 in the morning uh, while overseas, decided to to get into a Twitter feud with Bette Midler. So uh, it's been a very strange few days. I I, I, I guess my, my biggest takeaway from all of this is can you imagine how a second term of Donald Trump would be uh, without any restrictions, without any fear of have, even having to be reelected? Because he clearly wants desperately to be reelected. One, for his ego. Two, probably to stay out of prison. Which, interestingly, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, she uh, told her congressional caucus, or at least the, the leaders of her caucus, yesterday— In a very strange quote, she said that she does not want Donald Trump impeached. She wants him put in prison. Now, now that's a nuanced view. So apparently impeachment is too good for Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi's mind. Now, I don't know whether since this was in a private conversation, I don't know did she want this leaked out so that it could help her bona fides on the issue of whether or not she's tough enough on Trump, because I know some people on the liberal side are getting irritated that she's putting the brakes on impeachment. I don't know. Uh, But I don't know how you make the argument that the president of the United States should be in prison, yet we should not impeach him. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Correct. Uh, Especially from a historical perspective. And I have been in a rather increasingly nuanced way, I have been at the forefront of being in favor of Donald Trump's impeachment, but my position on this is now evolving. And for reasons that I'm exceedingly frustrated about, uh, I'm now sort of leaning against the idea of impeaching Trump uh, if Robert Mueller does not publicly testify. That's where I'm drawing the line right now. I mean, obviously things can change, things can happen, information can can be learned. But right now, I leave it all up to Mueller. Not that it should be in his hands, but effectively, that's where we are. If Robert Mueller testifies publicly, I say impeach Trump. Go for it. As long as you get everybody on board and you're, you know, you're not going to win the, the battle, but at least you can lose honorably, at least if Mueller testifies publicly. If Mueller does not testify publicly, I am not quite at saying don't bother, but I'm getting real close to don't bother. And I explained why in the last episode of the podcast, because I had written a column about this entire issue, that a great country would have already impeached Donald Trump, but we may no longer qualify. And so in, in episode 34 of the podcast, I discussed that, but I did not 
get into the details about what, on what basis Trump should be impeached to begin with. So I want to take a few minutes just to just for the record to put it out there, and this is ever-evolving as well, but right now, if, if I was writing the articles of impeachment for Donald Trump, they would look something like this. He is in constant and blatant violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, which prohibits the acceptance of payments from foreign governments. Just today, the Washington Post reports about an Iraqi sheikh who has spent 26 nights in Trump's hotel who is lobbying for a strike on Iran and who wants to become Iraq's next president. As someone tweeted, how many loyalty points at Trump hotels do you need to get an invasion of Iran? Now, you might laugh at that, but there's a serious element to this. Now, and this goes to what I constantly talk about with regard to Trump not being that rich. Because to the average person, they think, well, what does Trump care about who stays at his hotels? Well, there's two elements to this. One, there actually is money being involved here. Because when you spend 26 nights in a suite, that's a hell of a lot of money. All of which is going almost directly into the president's pocket. But there's also the ego element of it. Uh, There are now foreign elements... And this has been happening really since the beginning of Trump's presidency, who are looking at Trump like they see a third world dictator, that the way you do business with the United States of America is kind of like if he's a mob boss, you, you grease his palms. That's how you get things to work, which, of course, is swampy as hell. And Trump got elected claiming he was going to drain the swamp. But much like everything Trump says, it's the opposite of the truth. So. There's the monetary aspect of this, which is why the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution was created. And this is not an isolated circumstance. The Washington Post has done enormously good reporting on this issue for a very long time. This is happening constantly, especially in his D.C. hotel. It is basically like the uh, the way that you gain entry or access to Trump is if you spend enough money there, then you're going to get some at least access to the right people, if not action on your behalf. And so this is not an isolated episode, but the Emoluments Clause was created to prevent this very thing. And, and I'm particularly confused over the fact that this is happening in the D.C. hotel, because it is my understanding that the D.C. hotel was, was built on property which specifically states that it cannot be owned by someone like the President of the United States to avoid this very issue. And yet, nothing has happened with that. Nothing has come of that. I I believe there's some sort of lawsuits involving all this. I know there is involving the Emoluments Clause, but it's just amazing the brazenness with which Trump is willing and able to get away with this, and there's no criticism on the left at all. If anything uh, like this was happening by a Democratic president, it's all the right would be talking about. All of it. So that would be number one. The Mueller report makes it very clear that Trump welcomed help in an election from a foreign adversary with whom he was trying to do a massive business deal, and he did not inform the authorities about what was happening, and eventually he lied about those very same intelligence agencies for his own political survival. That, to me, is an impeachable offense. 
firing FBI Director James Comey just after telling him to go easy on the fired National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and demanding his personal loyalty. That's impeachable. Not the firing itself, but what the firing says about those comments to Comey. Because the firing proves those comments were obstruction of justice or attempted obstruction of justice by the president. Trump directing his then lawyer Michael Cohen to commit campaign finance violations to cover up his affairs and doing the same, possibly through his lawyers and through wink, wink, nod, nod activity to get Cohen to lie to Congress about the timing of that project I referred to already, the Trump Tower Moscow project, which to me is at the heart, at the center of the entire Trump-Russia scandal. Directing then White House counsel Don McGahn to fire Robert Mueller and then telling him to make a false statement saying that Trump never actually did that. That's obstruction of justice. And impeachable. Obstructing justice in the Paul Manafort case. This, to me, it's amazing how little attention this part gets. By overtly dangling a pardon for him and bizarrely condemning the prosecution and defending Manafort in what was effectively an act of jury tampering while his unsequestered jury was still deliberating. I I should compile a list. The problem with compiling a list is it would be endless and it would be impossible to remember everything that belongs on the list. But the list of things that are absolutely stunning that Trump has done, that have gotten no uh, attention at all, that most Americans have no idea even happened, this would be near the top of the list. That while the jury, unsequestered jury, was deliberating in the Paul Manafort case, his former campaign chairman, facing federal charges, the President of the United States condemned the prosecution and defended Manafort. (laughs) That's jury tampering. That's obstruction of justice. Correct. Especially when you're President of the United States. And your, your voice is heard throughout the entire world and your Twitter feed goes to millions and millions of people. And it's not a coincidence that Manafort did not get convicted on all charges. I think it's amazing he got convicted at all. When you consider all it would have taken was one or two Trump people on that jury getting wind of what Trump said and what he wanted, I'm sure that was an impact on the on the uh, the convictions and the acquittals in that case, Trump lied multiple times in his written answers to Mueller. First of all, the idea they didn't even do an interview after promising that he would, and then claiming that he's fully cooperated with the uh, the investigation, which is just flat out false. I mean, it's a complete and total. So he he lies multiple times in written answers. See, people need to understand how significant the written answer part of this is. This is not off the cuff. I misspoke. I I didn't remember at the time. No, no, no. This is a take-home test. You're, You're allowed to use notes. You're allowed to use the book. You're allowed to use Google. You have plenty of time to consider your answer. 37 times he said, He did not remember. Even though he supposedly has the best memory in the world, and even though these were key events that were highly memorable. And then finally, to me, this is something that Mueller could not yet have known about when he wrote his report, because much like the Comey firing, it put into context things that had happened previously. 
But if in, in, I'm becoming convinced that the number one reason that Donald Trump should be impeached and maybe his most clear-cut impeachable offense was actually the firing of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions had recused himself from the Russian investigation. For months, Trump tweeted that that was wrong, and he attacked Sessions for doing that. He could not have been more clear-cut. He even at one point directed via Twitter Sessions to get rid of Bob Mueller, effectively. So he's recused himself from the Russian investigation. Trump attacks him for recusing himself from the Russian investigation. And then Sessions gets fired when? The day after an election in the midst of a bat crap crazy press conference. The Sessions firing wasn't even the headline of that day. Wasn't even close. This was an obvious cover-up. I mean, in retrospect, everybody dropped the ball. The media, the Democratic Party, everybody should have gone nuts at that moment. You've just fired Jeff Sessions. But they were lulled into this false sense of security. How? I don't know. Because appointing Matt Whitaker, that goon, in the interim, certainly didn't do anything to instill confidence. But then when Bill Barr got nominated, because he's an institutionalist, because he was a Bush guy, and you know he can't, he can't be someone who's going to be willing to to roll over for Donald Trump. He's friends with Robert Mueller. All that turned out to be a smokescreen. And Bill Barr has actively deceived the public in an obvious and somewhat successful attempt to kill the impact of the Mueller report. In fact, it might be the most important thing that's happened. If Robert Mueller's press statement that he gave last week had been the first thing the average American had heard or seen about the Mueller report, and Bill Barr had never spoken and never made this BS declaration that wasn't even his job to exonerate Trump on quote-unquote collusion, which wasn't even the focus of the report, and on obstruction, then I believe the whole situation would be different. The momentum for impeachment would already be there. And instead, it's not. And, so, and those are just the core reasons I believe that Trump should, at least philosophically, be impeached. Of course, then there's also the issue of defying the subpoenas, which is still happening today. Don McGahn, Hope Hicks, Don McGahn's aide, they're all currently defying subpoenas for documents and testimony. And so with the state of impeachment as it is, I actually wrote a new column today, uh, which you can find at uh, our Twitter feed, which is Individual One Pod, comparing a delusion that I think a lot of people have which is that a lot of people think that these hearings, some of which are scheduled for this coming Monday, these congressional hearings, one of which is going to star John Dean, the former White House counsel for Richard Nixon, there's a delusion that a lot of people have that somehow if we get to the congressional hearings and the information is made public and maybe if Mueller testifies, then the American public's opinion will change Trump's approval ratings will go down, and this will all follow the Nixon model. That following the Nixon model, because you got to remember, Richard Nixon won a landslide re-election in 1972. By 1974, he was forced to resign because uh, Republicans had abandoned him, and Barry Goldwater, Senator Barry Goldwater from Arizona, said, uh, look, uh, you got to get out of here. It's over. And he, unlike Trump 
Uh, Nixon listened. <laughs> no one's going to tell Trump that, to get going because no one will have the balls. And Trump, because they all know Trump wouldn't do it because he doesn't have the dignity. He doesn't have the class. He doesn't give a sh- crap about the country. He cares about himself. So, uh, so that's very different. But it was incredibly fast what happened with Richard Nixon, even though the events had occurred, you know, the, the primary events of the, the Watergate situation had occurred before the election. So, you know, in, in some ways, it's a similar situation. But the media environment, as I write in my column today, is totally different today. The fragmentation of the media alone makes any comparison to what happened to Nixon and what might happen to Trump borderline delusional. And uh, Fox News Channel did not exist in 1974. The Drudge Report did not exist in 1974. Talk Radio did not exist in 1974. And therefore, Nixon did not have a large enough cult to hang on to to get him through that kind of controversy and crisis. Trump is going to be able to hold on to his 40% or so of the American public because they are invested in him. They're partially invested in him because he's so horrible. That's what the great irony of the Trump presidency is. If he wasn't so horrible, in a weird way, a lot of Republicans wouldn't feel so invested in him. But because he's so horrendous in so many ways, Republicans don't want to acknowledge how colossally stupid they were in nominating and electing him. So they have to pretend it's not really the case. That's what's driving a lot of this. I believe the conservative media is effectively acting as a therapist for a lot of mainstream conservatives who need an excuse, a rationalization for why it's okay to continue to support Donald Trump because the alternative is so much worse and liberals are going to destroy the country and we're all going to be in socialistic chains in, in a year after Trump is gone and so we, the ends justify the means, whatever, whatever rationalization it's going to take for them to put up with this nonsense that is the Trump presidency in so many different ways. So because there's now Fox News Channel and the Drudge Report and other conservative internet outlets and talk radio, there's always going to be a place for those who want to support Trump because they're invested in Trump to be able to go to to get their information rationalized. And that's why they come up with these BS conspiracy theories, you know, like the deep state and Obama spying on Trump and the FBI out to get Trump and a coup d'etat and all that bull crap. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? I'm sure that in 1974, if Nixon had created some sort of deep state conspiracy theory and had Fox News Channel and talk radio and and the Internet carrying his water, he probably could have held on to 40 percent himself. Because, frankly, you know, in retrospect, what Nixon did, while terrible, was nowhere near as bad as some of the stuff I just outlined with regard to Donald Trump. And, and by the way, it's way worse. What Trump, I would outlined about Donald Trump is way, way worse with a far greater magnitude than what happened with Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton was rightfully impeached and should have been removed from office. So check out my column about the differences between 1974 and 2019, because they're really important to understanding where we're headed with all of this. Uh, interestingly, it's not just impeachment hearings that are coming, although they're not technically impeachment hearings. My good friend John Yarmouth, who I already mentioned 
uh, earlier in, the, in this podcast, the Democratic uh, head of the uh, Budget Committee is apparently part of this <laughs> Democratic congressional, I don't know if you would call it a hearing or a town hall, on Trump's mental health. They're actually going to be doing a an event, an official congressional event, the, the details of which have not yet been set, where they're going to bring in mental health experts to discuss whether or not uh, Donald Trump has lost it, uh, which I can understand, although I, I'm not sure what the point of this is. I'd like to, I haven't spoken to John yet about this. I intend to do so. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I'm certainly one of those people who believe that he has multiple personality disorders. In fact, I believe he has multiple personalities. And as far as evidence that he's completely nuts in a dangerous way, uh, more of that happened uh, just a few days ago. Again, I I say this constantly, but it bears repeating, events that would be week, two-week, month-long stories in previous administrations, outrages that would go to the core of the country, are now forgotten in like two hours. The President of the United States just a few days ago, tweeted that people should boycott AT&T. Why? First of all, let's stop right there. Let's stop right there. The President of the United States is publicly urging people to boycott a huge heritage American company that employs, I don't know how many people, hundreds of thousands of people, Crazy numbers of people. The President of the United States, right there, <laughs> we're talking insane. The, the President of the States, and he's done this before. He essentially did this with Harley Davidson before. And I think he's done it with some other companies. But the, the, the concept, the concept of him doing this just to begin with against AT&T. It's just flat out ridiculous. All right. So, so let's stop right there. But then there's the reason. Why does he want people to boycott AT&T? Because AT&T owns CNN. And Trump doesn't like CNN's coverage of what? Of him. This is not him. It would be, it would be absurd, but at least might be understandable if he was urging a boycott of AT&T because they had done something incredibly unethical or unpatriotic or they were working against the interests of the United States. Okay, I could maybe theoretically see that. But no, 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 no. This was about one thing, about news media coverage, which theoretically should be protected by the First Amendment. The government should have no damn business in in <laughs> using the presidency of the United States and all the power that entails to punish news outlets with whom it disagrees. But then the issue of the disagreement is basically one thing. They don't like Trump. That's it. So not to mention, in doing this, you would also be helping Fox News Channel, which is the number one or one of the number one competitors of CNN. And, of course, Fox News Channel is state-run media now. Donald Trump is effectively the program director. I I have to admit, I I enjoyed uh, reading that Dave Bossie, my old boss, the guy who co-produced my first film I did, a documentary for Citizens United called Blocking the Path to 9-11. Dave Bossie, who got in a feud with Donald Trump after having been his deputy campaign uh, uh, manager 
and then after the election, essentially trying to brag that he was going to be part of the re-election to get people to donate money to him, something I have no problem believing Dave Bossy did. Well, Trump apparently got pissed off at Bossy and sent out the word to Fox News Channel to chop his balls off. So now Bossy's not been on, the sh- on Fox News Channel since. I mean, so Donald Trump, and this happens constantly. He, he lobbied for Jeanine Pirro's job at Fox News Channel. Same for Tucker Carlson. Donald Trump is effectively the program director at Fox News Channel. It is state-run media. And so the idea that the President of the United States urges a boycott of AT&T to punish CNN for their news coverage about him, people... You cannot be serious! And yet, I guarantee you, less than... 25% of the American people are even aware this happened. And I'll bet it's less than 5% of the conservative base that is even aware this happened and has been explained the magnitude and the significance and the absurdity of something like this occurring. There is some semblance of hope uh, in, in going up against Trump from the Republican side on the issue of tariffs, the Mexican tariffs, the the 5% tariff that, uh, Trump is unilaterally planning on instituting on on goods coming out of Mexico, which is insane. It's an absurd idea. Republicans apparently are outraged by this in the U.S. Senate. They're they're threatening to block it. Who knows whether or not they will once again uh, cave or whether this time maybe they will actually stand up. But at least there's some there's a half of a pulse, at least when it comes to some economic issues within the Republican Senate. Not on ethical issues. No, no, no. Ethical issues, forget about it. Correct. But there may be uh, some semblance of a backbone on Mexican uh, tariffs, which would be a good thing. And the stock market has responded positively to that possibility. There's been some polling out that is not good for Donald Trump. You know, his approval ratings have, have stayed very steady and stronger than they have been. He's now up into the range of 42, 43 percent, although it's always difficult to tell exactly what the real number is, because Rasmussen is a total joke, uh, very pro-Trump firm that always has his approval like 48, 49, 50 percent, which is just not true. Uh, so but there's no question his approval ratings have have stabilized and are not as bad as they have been in the past. They're still nowhere near as good <laughs> as they would they should be to be reelected. But interestingly, you know, his approval rating nationally, as well as the overall generic vote percentages against, for instance, Joe Biden or any other potential Democratic nominee, are, are not nearly as relevant in some ways as they used to be, because we are living in such a divided country. This is what happened in 2016. You know, Hillary, the polls ended up being correct. That's the, the great fallacy of polling in the 2016 election. Hillary won the popular vote by basically the exact amount that was forecast. The problem for her was she didn't win in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, as the polls indicated that she would. So there was a catastrophic polling era in Wisconsin, a significant one in Michigan, and a minor one in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, And those three states ended up turning the election from being safely Hillary Clinton, to being a massive upset for Donald Trump. But there's some new polling data indicating that Trump is now losing big time, especially to Joe Biden, in Wisconsin and in Michigan. And get this, even losing to Joe Biden in Texas. 
Texas. And the most astonishing thing about the Texas poll is Trump doesn't even get, I think he's at 44%. I think it was 48-44 Biden. Donald Trump, I realize it's a long way out. But folks, a 100% of American voters, even as poorly educated as we are. I love the poorly educated. 100% of American voters have enough information to make a decision between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. There is not one person voting who doesn't know enough about each of those two people to make a choice. And so for Donald Trump, in a reputable poll, polling firm I actually used to work for many, many years ago, Quinnipiac, but I digress. Not that I really like the people there, but there's no question they were all liberals, but I trust their polling uh, mechanisms. So if for Donald Trump to only get 44% in Texas, that is troubling if you're on the Trump side of things. Doesn't mean he's going to lose Texas. I still don't believe he's going to lose Texas. I mean, heck, Ted Cruz beat uh, Beto O'Rourke, and no one even likes Ted Cruz, and it wasn't that close. So I got to believe Trump is still going to win Texas. But even if he has to spend time and resources and effort there, that creates a problem. Because when you're pandering to Texas, it's not going to help you in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania where the election is going to be fought, especially if the Democratic candidate is Joe Biden. And I, you know, this I've never seen a presidential election where uh, it's going to be fought on in a smaller number of states than what looks like 2020 is going to happen, especially if Joe Biden is the candidate. Because the, the, can, the strategy for Joe Biden is clear-cut. Win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, which is exactly what Joe Biden did twice as Barack Obama's vice presidential nominee. You win those three states, that's ball game. It's over. Trump cannot win, period, End of sentence. Correct. And so Biden has strong ties to Pennsylvania. The polls indicate that Wisconsin and Michigan are regretting their votes in 2016. There's nothing Trump can do about it. Now, if personally, if Biden's the, the candidate on the Democrats, I'm still focusing a lot on Florida as well. Trump does better in Florida than I understand. I don't quite get it. And maybe it's the age of uh, Floridians and, you know, maybe the influence of Fox News Channel is greater there because they're all older and that's all they do is watch Fox News Channel. There's a lot of rednecks in Florida. Not that Biden can't win Florida, but to me, you focus on Florida as an insurance policy if if your goal is to beat Donald Trump. As far as who's going to be the nominee uh, for the Democrats, Biden still has a healthy lead But what's interesting about that is, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating, Bernie Sanders right now is Joe Biden's best friend because Bernie Sanders clearly cannot be the nominee. He is tapped out somewhere in the low 20s, the highest percentage of vote he can get. That's it. But because he's in that range, he is now solidly in second place and he's blocking all the other contenders who might be able to win the nomination, the, the Warrens, the Harrises, the Buttigieg, the, um, maybe O'Rourke, uh, maybe Booker, I doubt it. There's a couple other people that are, are theoretically possible nominees if they caught fire. But how do you catch fire when Joe Biden is way out in front and Bernie Sanders is blocking everybody else from getting into double digits and becoming into that top tier? 
Plus, Bernie Sanders being, you know, older than dirt makes Joe Biden seem not quite as old as he as he already looks. So if I'm the Biden people, I am hoping that the Sanders team stays exactly where they are because he's effectively blocking for Joe Biden. And I continue to believe that if Joe Biden is the nominee, and I don't know if that's going to happen, because there's no question people are going to go after Joe Biden, even on the left. We're seeing it already. They're nitpicking at Joe Biden because they don't like the Joe Biden narrative. He's old. He's white. He's male. So there's going to be there's going to be problems for Joe Biden. I even think the Russians are going to cause problems for Joe Biden. I, I, I would look for that as a narrative going forward, because Joe Biden is trouble for Donald Trump. Trump knows it. Everybody knows it. Other people might not be as much trouble for Donald Trump. And so, um, you know, right now, the way things are going, it looks good. But there's a long, 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 long time to go. And I do believe that Biden is going to have more than one crisis going forward. And the media is not going to be his friend. So, but, but with all that said, I'm not changing any of our percentages which with, with which we end each edition of the Individual One podcast. I'm going to keep at 5% the chances that Donald Trump does not finish his first term in office and his chances for re-election, while less than 50% are still very much in the realm of realistic at 40%. And again, most of that hinges on whether or not an unscathed Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee. That'll do it for this episode of the Individual One podcast. Uh, we are scheduled to come back at you again on uh, Sunday morning, Los Angeles, California time. Until then, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, share this uh, program via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at individual1pod. That's individual, the number one pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network. Global Story Network.